You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys today. Like Bevan said, my name is Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor here. And we are spending December going through a series of messages where we are looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus. And as you study her story, you realize that Mary was a very unique character in human history. She's unique for multiple reasons. One of the reason she's unique is she was a virgin who gave birth to a child. She's also unique because of the child that she gave birth to. The um, child was both fully God, fully man, second person in the Trinity, the Savior of the world. And that sets Mary apart as unique from other people through human history. But Mary is not only unique, there's also a lot of confusion surrounding Mary and her story. And the confusion about Mary and who she was and what she did is not because of what the Bible says about her. The confusion is because through the centuries, people have added to and twisted the story of Mary. And this confusion is even something that can be seen locally. You've probably seen this statue along PCH in Long Beach. If you drive down PCH in Long Beach, there's this statue of the Virgin Mary. And we would, my family and I, we'd be driving by the statue, maybe headed to the aquarium or something like that to take the kids. And I would see it and I would see people gathered and there's people putting flowers or people gathered to pray. And I always wondered, what is, what's the story behind this statue? So I looked it up. And originally the statue was built on the property of a Catholic convent, a place where, the, where some nuns lived. And the reason for a statue like this, a place for people to gather and pray, is because of a belief that the um, nuns that were there had that's not a belief that you um, find in the Bible, but it's, it's an idea that Mary was sinless, that she's a giver of God's grace, that she can be prayed to as a mediator between us and Christ. And so this statue was constructed. But eventually this convent of nuns, they moved, they moved to a different property. And so they sold the property and they sold it to a Buddhist group. And this Buddhist group came in and put a monastery there on the same property. And in this um, part of Buddhism, they believe that Mary is a saint who brings peace. And so it's interesting, now what you have is you have two groups of people that are from contradictory faith systems, contradictory religions. One belief that there is a God and that God can be known, and then the other group believes that there is no God, and because there is no God, there's nothing to know about him. So two contradictory faith groups gather to worship and pray at the same statue. So like I said, there is a lot of confusion about Mary, who she was and what she did. And this confusion can even be seen locally. And so in this series, what we're doing is we're exploring the Bible to see who Mary was and to see what we can learn from her life and what the lessons from her life that we can also apply to our lives. So last week we started off and we looked at Luke chapter 1, verse 28, where the angel comes to Mary, tells her what's going to happen, and he starts and he says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. So this is kind of the introduction to her story, and we unpacked this last week. And today we're going to shift and we're going to answer a question about uh, Mary's life. We're going to answer the question, how do you experience what Mary experienced and make it out with your faith intact? Because if you study her story, what you realize is she went through a roller coaster of events, ups and downs, highs and lows, events that were amazing to experience, and then some of the most devastating heartbreak that you could go through. But she makes it out on the other side of all of this with her faith 
still intact. And so we're going to unpack this a little bit today and answer this question. And to help us answer, answer this question, we're going to start by looking at two events around the nativity scene, two events that have to do with the birth of Jesus and also the arrival of the shepherds. And we're going to see kind of how Mary handled that situation and then identify some lessons that we can learn for ourselves. So we're going to start and look at the nativity scene. Now, with the nativity scene, we've all seen the classic Christmas cards, where it's just this idyllic setting. I mean, Jesus is, he's glowing, the animals, some of the cards, the animals are smiling, you know, you have this happy cow that's standing there, or a donkey. Mary and Joseph are gathered around in wonder and amazement of their baby, and somehow, apparently, it's the same night Jesus is born, but he's a fat six-month-old. And it's just like, you see these idyllic pictures. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the story, and then I want to highlight a few of the details, and we're going to start to imagine what it would have really been like, what the nativity scene would have really been like. So let's start. The story's found in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So that's an important detail. There's a census taking place. We'll come back to that. Verse 3, And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So several important details there. One is... Joseph is, his family at some point is from Bethlehem. So that's an important note. They go from Nazareth, they travel to Bethlehem. And then another important note that we're going to come back to is they aren't married yet, but she's expecting a child. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be, baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So as we think about some of these details, what you see as you really start to dive into this and imagine what it would be like, what you see is that this is a worst case scenario birth story. This is one of those birth stories where when a bunch of moms get together and start to tell their worst case scenario birth stories, Mary wins, hands down. Every time she wins this story, she tells hers and everybody else goes silent. So let's unpack this and see what this looks like. So it's common to portray the story, kind of the common way that it's presented to us, is that Mary and Joseph, they're traveling to Bethlehem. She's on the back of a donkey. She goes into labor while on the back of the donkey, and they arrive just in time for her to give birth in an animal stable. Now, if that's really how it happened, that's a worst case scenario, in labor on the back of a donkey. I mean, it's just like, it's like that's a worst case scenario. But let's consider some of these details. Let's do a little informed imagining based on the details that are presented here. One, one thing that I think is worth noting is that they were likely in Bethlehem for months. So this takes place during a Roman census. That is not a fast event. It's not like today. It's not like you just drive to LA and turn in a form and you're done. No, this, is a, this would be a slow extended process. So this takes place in the middle of a Roman census. And traveling from Bethlehem to Nazareth would have been a perilous journey. It would have been full of windy roads. While you might be able to make it in a day if you really hustled, 
Joseph is traveling with his pregnant wife. There's a lot of other people that are moving around during this time because the census is taking place. Windy roads, there are parts of the journey that they likely would have avoided. So this trip from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem could have taken them weeks. So the census is an extended period, and it probably took them weeks to get there. Also, we don't know how long they're there in Bethlehem. It just says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So it doesn't tell us how long they're there. It doesn't say that they arrived that day or a few days before. So it's likely, given the facts, that they had been in Bethlehem for months. They could have even gotten there as early as the second trimester and then stayed until Jesus was born. That's one thing to note. Another detail in the story is that Joseph was poor. Now, it doesn't say that in this this nativity story, but we know that when they take Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, the way that they do that indicates that they weren't just poor, but they were very, very poor. And so affording a room in an inn or a hotel for an extended period of time is very unlikely because of the amount of money that they had. They were poor. And because Bethlehem is where Joseph's family at some point is from. It's not like today where families are moving around all over the place and are scattered. People stayed put in the place where they grew up. And so it's highly likely that Joseph has family still in Bethlehem. So when they go back and make this journey, they're probably staying with his extended family. A lot of relatives packed together in a pretty small space. So leading up to to the birth of the child, Mary's first child, leading up to it, she's not with her mom, she's not with her sister, she's not with her best friend to support her and take care of her, she's living with her fiancé's extended family in close quarters. And add to that, Mary and Joseph, they're not married yet, but Mary's pregnant. And this is a highly conservative society. So you can just kind of start to imagine, you know, you're living with strangers in a strange place, you're unmarried, you're pregnant. You can just kind of start to imagine, you know, they might not have directly said anything like, hey, would you tell me the story about the angel again? Right, yeah, okay. I mean, they might not have done that, but you can imagine some of the passive aggressive, the comments, the looks. You can just kind of start to imagine some of the tension that they might have been living in as they're staying with his extended family leading up to the birth of Jesus. So again, whether, whether it happened like we commonly think of it, while she's riding a donkey, she goes into labor only to arrive just in time, or whether she's staying with her extended family for an extended period of time, going through the, the challenges of those relationships, strangers in a strange place, again, this is a really, really hard picture that the Bible's painting leading up to the birth of Jesus. So then the time for Jesus to be born comes, and they go and search for a private place. If they're staying with extended family who's a little critical of you and judging you, it makes sense why they go and look for a private place to have the baby. But they can't find one. So they end up, they can't find a room in a hotel or an inn. So they end up in some type of structure. We don't know what the structure was. We don't know if it was a barn or a stable or a cave. We're not sure. We just know that animals are kept there. They end up in some kind of structure. And they use a manger to place Jesus in. So a a manger, that's a feeding trough. So imagine, imagine your cute little fluffy dog at home. Imagine their food bowl. Those things get gross. Okay, so switch it out for your dog, and it's a cow or a donkey or goats or sheep. This is a this is an animal's feeding trough. 
This is not a sterile, clean, fragrant-free environment. This is, a, this is a gross situation that they're in. You know, this isn't kind of the romantic setting that we often imagine. So they find this place, and then I want you to notice this detail about the birth. This is really significant. It says, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. So this is referring, she wrapped him in cloths. This is referring to swaddling Jesus. She swaddled Jesus. Now, it's common to swaddle a baby. That's common. It was common then, it's common today. What's not common is for the birth mom to be the one that does it right after she gives birth. What would have been common in that period of time was for the room to be full of women, women who had given birth and knew how to handle the situations and the complications and the things that arise as you go through that process. It would have been common to have a midwife and your mom and some aunts in the room who are there to help you and support you. So while one individual goes and cares for the birth mom, another individual would have taken the baby and cleaned the baby up and swaddled the baby. But we're not told that that happens. The only other person that's in the story that's possibly in the room is Joseph. And I have four kids of my own, and I kind of understand why he's not mentioned in this part of the story, because us dads just aren't that helpful in these situations. So I kind of get it. I mean, I'm like, okay, I kind of get it while he's not mentioned, but... Just think about how hard that would be for Mary. She's in this setting that's dirty and gross. It's not this clean, sterile, tranquil, peaceful environment like we like to imagine. She's in this setting, she's a teenager, it's her first child, and no one's there to care and support and comfort her in this situation. So she's the one that takes the baby right after the baby's born, and she's the one that swaddles the baby, again, it's painting a picture of a very, very hard experience. She probably felt very alone in this situation. But then another really hard thing happens. So it's not, not enough at this point. Something else happens. We're told about a group of shepherds that show up. Now, shepherds, you know, sometimes it's, it's portrayed that they're these, like, happy little children that just come running in and everybody's so joyful. But shepherds in that period of time... They were a very low-class group of people. They were a rough group. They could have had a criminal background. We don't know. We know that they were considered ceremonially unclean by the Jewish leaders. We know that they were viewed as religious outcasts. So they're working at night out in the field, spending their time with animals. They're kind of separated from society on purpose. And this group that's out in the field, this is what happens. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 9, it says... An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Today in the town of David. So we don't know. Again, we don't know the timing. We don't know. Was Jesus born at 10 o'clock, and this happens at 2 a.m.? We don't know the timing. But it's, it's within the first day. It's today. So Jesus isn't just a newborn like three weeks ago. This is, Jesus is a newborn, newborn. I mean, like, he was just born, okay? So he's just born. The angel shows up to the shepherds, says, hey, this all happened. Go off and see. Skipping ahead to verse 16. So they, the shepherds, they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying 
in the manger. Now, this is, this is comical if you think about these details. So if you're a, if you're a first-time parent, especially a first-time parent, you have this newborn baby. It's within the first 24 hours, probably a shorter amount of time than that. It's within the first day. What do you do with your newborn baby? You hold it. I mean, that baby's born, you're holding that baby. You're passing that baby back and forth. Mom holds the baby for a little bit. Then dad holds the baby for a little bit. Then you pass the baby back to mom for a little bit. If you, if you have a newborn, especially within the first day, the only time that we put our newborns down, let's say in a bassinet, for them it's this feeding trough, the only time we put them down is when? When we want to get some rest. So Mary is probably recovering. Joseph is resting. And who are their first guests? Is it her mom coming in? Oh, I'm coming to save the day and help you. Is it her best friend who's like, you know, you get some rest, I'm going to take care of the baby? No, it's a ragtag group of outsiders. The last group of people you'd want to see. And just personalize this for a second. How would you respond in that situation? I don't think I would respond very well. I think I'd probably have some words and probably be like, what are you guys doing? Get out of here, you know? Go find somewhere else. you got the wrong place. That's probably what I would do. Look what Mary does. Verse 19, chapter 2. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is amazing. She just went through a worst-case scenario birth story. She's using an animal's feeding trough as a bassinet. The first people that visit her are a bunch of smelly, stinky, outsider shepherds. And instead of, instead of getting angry, instead of complaining, instead of blaming Joseph, come on, you should have planned better. Like, this is where we are? This is how we're starting this off? Instead of blaming Joseph, what does she do? She treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. Another way of saying that is she spent time wondering what God was up to. Not like She's not criticizing God. She's not sitting there like, God, what in the world are you doing? Out of wonder, she's storing these things up saying, I wonder what God's going to do. I wonder what he's doing in this situation. I wonder how this is going to be part of his bigger plan. Again, you read through this story and you pay attention to the details. This is amazing. And as you study her life, you realize that she faced much harder trials than this. And again and again, she went through really difficult, painful, challenging things. And her faith, it stayed intact. And it wasn't because she was sinless. It wasn't because she was somehow unique and separated and had some gift that made her impervious to anything like this. No, she was an ordinary human being just like you and me. And you see that as you read through her story. The story makes it very clear that that's the case. So what is it that you and I can learn from Mary based on what she went through that'll help us go through the challenges that we experience in life? Here's a few things that we can learn from Mary. Here's two things that Mary knew. The first thing is Mary knew her life was part of a bigger story. This is really important and helped her go through a lot of different stuff in life. She knew her life was part of a bigger story. She knew her life found meaning in the context of God's story. And we know this, we know that she knew her life was part of a bigger story because of a song that Mary wrote. And we looked at part of this song last week, and we're going to unpack a different element of it today, but I want to start reading it. It starts in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. This is what Mary says. 
And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So she says this, and what she's doing as she's saying this is she is pointing to the bigger story. And there's three things I want to highlight that she points to. She refers to God as my Savior. She refers to Abraham, and then also the promises made to the ancestors, her ancestors. And the reason that she brings these up is these three things are significant events in the plot line of God's story. See, the plot line of God's story, it goes like this. It starts with God creating a perfect world. That's the very beginning of the story. The very beginning of the story starts with God creating. God creates a perfect world. But then God's world didn't remain perfect because the first man and the first woman, whose names were Adam and Eve, they decided to rebel against God. They rejected God and decided to go their own way. And this decision on their part, it resulted in the curse of sin coming on the world. And through sin, we get division between people, we get hatred, we get disease, death. All of these things came into the world. The world is broken because of sin. But God didn't look at this world broken by sin and say, you humans messed it up, I'm just going to leave you all alone and go start over and do something new. In the story, what God does, instead of abandoning them, is he goes to a man named Abraham, and he makes a promise that one day all the people of the earth would be blessed through him. And what God does through Abraham, the Bible's making it very clear that God has a plan to save people from the consequences of sin through Abraham's offspring. Abraham's offspring would become known as the Jewish people. Abraham is referred to as the father of the Jewish people. And what God does is he forms the Jewish people into a kingdom. He takes them from Abraham and he forms them into a kingdom. Over time, he reveals more and more of the story and gives more and more details about his plan to save the world from sin. And then in the story, that plan comes to a fulfillment and Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he is the fulfillment or the ultimate solution to the problem of sin, the one who can save us and rescue us from sin and restore us to God. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. And Mary knew this. So Mary, when she has this song and she sings this praise to God, she points to this story. And she recognizes that her life finds meaning and the events that she experiences find their context within the plot line of this bigger story. So she points to it. And again, I want to read something really important that she says in Luke 1.47. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So she doesn't just point to the plot line. She also recognizes that because of her own sin, what she needs is she needs God to save her. And she recognizes that this child that she's carrying is going to be the one ultimately who saves her. She's aware of this. She's aware of the plot line. She's aware of what she's done. She's aware of her need for God to be the one to save her. And so it's within the context of this bigger story that Mary starts to make sense of the experiences she has and the ups and downs that she goes through. Again, knowing the bigger story helped give her life context. The thing is, you and I are, start, are part of the same story. 
For you and I, our life finds meaning in its context in the bigger story. Your life is not just defined by the experiences that you're having right now. The experiences you're having now and the things that you're going through, the ups and the downs, find their context and find clarity as you start to understand the bigger story, as you start to understand the plot line, the themes, the key events that have taken place. As you start to make sense of this, similar to Mary, life starts to make more sense. And a theme that you find in this story, a main theme in the story, is that in the midst of a world broken by sin, what God is doing is he's saving people through Jesus. This is a theme of the story. In the midst of a world broken by sin, broken all the way back at the very beginning, God is saving people through Jesus. Mary recognized this theme. She saw this theme. Now for me, one of the ways that I get in trouble as I go through life is I try to add themes to the story. I try to write my own theme into the story. I know a main theme of the story is, you know, in the midst of a world broken by sin, God is saving people through Jesus. I know that's a main theme in the story, but then I try to add my own themes. The most common theme that I add to the story is that life is about being happy. That's the most common theme I add to the story. I, I kind of, sometimes without even thinking through it, I start to just write this theme into the story and say, well, life's really about me being happy. And this could look a lot of different ways. I mean, maybe, you know, this looks like the American dream. Maybe it looks like, you know, the theme of the story is getting the American dream. The perfect marriage, the perfect kids, the perfect career, the perfect house. You know, the theme of the story, the focus of the story, where the energy should be devoted, the thing you should live for is this. You know, sometimes I start to think that. Other times I start to think that the theme of the story is just acquiring a lot of toys, getting a lot of stuff, you know? Big fancy house, lots of cars. What could you add to this picture? It's missing a boat for sure, you know? <laughs> could use, you know, an RV, but not just any RV, one of those, you know, overlander, massive like FC 650 or whatever, you know? It's like a million dollar RV. You know, I mean, what else could you add to it? I start to live like, well, that's the theme of the story. The theme is me just adding a ton of fun stuff. You know, and there's other times that I start to think the theme of the story is that I should be, I should be healthy and pain-free, you know? It's kind of like this quote, aging is for people who don't know better. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ridiculous quote. It really is, you know? It's such a ridiculous quote. But what's interesting is for me, you know, when I have, when I get sick, when I have unexplainable pain, you know, when I have, you know, a nagging injury from when I was younger starts to come and creep in and impact my life, suddenly I'm surprised, I'm discouraged, I'm, what in the world's going on in this situation? It, it throws me off. And it's because, I, I didn't say it out loud, I didn't say, hey, life is about being as healthy and fit and feeling good as long as possible. I didn't say that out loud. But just kind of in my heart, I started to write that theme into the story. And then whenever I experience anything that goes against that theme, suddenly like, suddenly it's like the, 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 the rails come off and I'm just, I'm a wreck. What I've learned is adding themes to the story gets me in trouble because I'm not the author of the story. I don't get to write the themes. God's the one who sets the main theme. 
And what I've also learned is instead of trying to write my own themes into the story, if I'll live for what he says the theme is, life goes so much better. So if he says the main theme, Elliot, it's not about you being happy. It's not about the American dream. It's not about acquiring all these things. It's not about being fit and healthy and trying to live as long as possible. The main theme of the story is that in a world broken by sin, God is saving people. If I'll live for that and let that be the theme that informs how I live, life goes so much better as you go through the story. Mary saw her life in the context of a bigger story, and it helped her again and again make sense of her experiences. It's the same for us. As we go through life, it's important to remember the plot line and the main themes of the story. Another thing that is really important, it's important to know where we are in the story. You know, the location of where you are in the story is really important. And for you and me, our lives are somewhere between the beginning of the story and the end of the story. You know, we know the beginning of the story. We know how it, how it starts. We know some of the key events that have taken place throughout the story. We know that Jesus has already come. And we know how the story is going to end. We know that for those who have made a decision to follow Jesus and turn to him in repentance, we know that the story doesn't end here and now, but the story ends with eternity in heaven with God. So we know the beginning, we know some key events, and we know where it ends. But we're not at the beginning, we're not at the ending, and that means that for you and me, we're somewhere in the middle of the story. And the reality about living in the middle of a story is there are always unanswered questions. All kinds of questions based on experiences, ours, the experiences of others, our pain, our ups and downs, all kinds of questions that we live with that are unanswered questions. Here are some of the questions that we ask. Why am I going through this? Why, why did God allow this to happen? Why can't we get pregnant? Will there be a cure for this disease? Why didn't I get that opportunity? Will this relationship ever be repaired? Will they ever change? Are they in heaven? Question after question, unanswered questions that we live with. And living with questions like these, unanswered questions, it's not easy. And some of these questions, these questions can consume us. They can just consume our thoughts and consume our minds. They can shake our faith and they can keep us from moving forward. But it's important to know that as people who live in the middle of the story, we're gonna have unanswered questions. And some of these questions that we have, these questions are not gonna be answered until the end of the story. And that's what makes the next thing that Mary knew so important for us to know as well. The next thing that Mary knew is she knew the character of the author. She knew the character of the one who was writing the story. This is so important. It was important for her and it's important for us. Again, let me read this from Mary's song, Luke 1, starting in verse 50 this time, in the middle of the song. She says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So as she makes this list, it's not an exhaustive list of God's character. But she points to some specific things. She points to God's mercy. She knows that he's a God of mercy. She points to how he works in the world. She points to 
patterns of here are the people that he elevates, here are the people that he blesses, here are the people that he opposes, here are the people that he, he sends away. She points to the control that he has in the world. She points to these things. Again, it's not, a, it's not an exhaustive list, but she had an understanding of who God was. She had an understanding of his character. And for you and me, as we live in the middle of the story, we don't know what's ahead of us on the path of life. We know we live in a world that's broken by sin. So we know that there's gonna be trials. We know that there's gonna be pain. We know that there's gonna be suffering in different forms. But the specifics, we don't know those specifics. We don't know the twists and turns on the path of life that's ahead of us. We don't know what the setbacks are gonna be. We don't know what the failures that we're gonna experience, both the failures of other people and the failures of our own. We don't know what the illness or the loss or the heartbreak or the opposition that we're gonna encounter will be. Again, we're, we're living in a world broken by sin. We know that that's, that's, part of the theme, that's part of the story. We know that this is a reality. So we know there's gonna be pain and there's gonna be trials, but the specifics, we don't know those specifics. We don't know what's coming ahead of us. And then also as we go forward, we're living with these unanswered questions. Why this? Why that? What's going on in this situation? Why is God allowing this? Where is he in this situation? We're living with these unanswered why questions. And this is the reason as we face the path ahead, the uncertain path ahead, and we live with the why questions, this is the reason it's important to know the character of the author. For Mary, she knew the character of the author. She knew God. And she determined that he was in control and he could be trusted as she went through the story. It's the same for us. When we have a trust in God like Mary did, it helps us live with the tension of unanswered questions. The unanswered questions of why did this happen and the unanswered questions of what is the future going to look like. When you know the character of the author, the character of the one who is weaving your life and your story into the bigger story, you can trust him as you face the uncertainty and live with the tension of unanswered questions. There's something in Mary's life that I, I found really interesting, something in her story, and it's specific to this song that she um, sings. It's recorded in um, Luke chapter 1. But there's a comparison that's made between, uh, by Bible scholars between this song of Mary's that you can find in Luke chapter 1 and a prayer or a praise by a woman named Hannah in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Hannah's story, you can read through her story later, but in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we get an overview of her story. She's married, she's trying to have a kid, she's unable to get pregnant. She goes to God, she's begging God, God, please have mercy, please allow me to have a child. Over time, God allows her to have a child. When God does this, she gives the child, it's a son, she gives him the name Samuel. Samuel would go on, he would become one of the greatest prophets and judges in Israel's history. And after Samuel's born, she takes him to the tabernacle and she dedicates him to God. And after she dedicates him, she prays, or another thing is she sings a prayer to God. And this prayer of hers, it's recorded in chapter two of 1 Samuel. And there is an amazing amount of similarities between her song or her prayer and what Mary says in Luke chapter one. If you, if you put them on a piece of paper side by side, the first thing you would notice is Hannah's is longer, but outside of the number of words that she uses, 
the structure, what they focus on, the flow of thought. They start in one place, and then they transition to another place, and then they go from there to a third place. As you go through and you, you compare these two statements by these two women, they are almost identical. It's really, really fascinating how similar these two things are. And the Bible, the Bible in the Bible, it doesn't say that you know, Mary got her idea from Hannah. That's never said. But what I think is I, if I have studied this and I've considered this, I, I think it's safe to say that as Mary was growing up, she spent time learning the stories of the people that had gone before her. You know, if, if when she goes through the trials she goes through, if she's going to realize that her life is part of a bigger story and she knows the character of the author, it points to the fact that she had spent time as a young girl before she became a young woman learning God's story and learning about the people that had come before her in the story. And my guess is that Hannah, for Mary, was one of the people that was somewhat of a hero in God's story for Mary. And so as she faces an experience in life and she looks at the road ahead, she probably looked back and she thought, well, I know God's story because I've spent time learning it. And I know how he's come through again and again for people, people like Hannah and other people through the story. And so she looked at that and she concluded, well, if they could trust God then, if this is who he was, if this is his character and this is how he showed up and we know that he doesn't change. So if this is who he was then, then Mary concluded that then in her situation and what she was facing in her day, she concluded, well, if they could trust him then, then I can trust him in my situation. And she saw that just like their lives were part of a bigger story, my life is part of a bigger story. And just like they trusted the character of the author, I can trust the character of the author. So as I think about this, I think, what's the same for you and me today? I mean, obviously our lives are very different. Mary's life and Hannah's life were very different. The situations were very different. But your and my lives are also part of the bigger story. And we can also know and come to trust the character of the author. It takes time. You've got to learn the story. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I try to start my day. I don't, I don't get it every day, but I try to start most days reading my Bible and praying. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm going back and I'm refreshing myself and learning parts of the story. This is the bigger story that God's writing. These are, these are the themes. These are the plot lines. These are the people that he's been at work in through the centuries. I'm familiarizing myself with the story. And then I'm learning more about the character of the author. I'm discovering the one who's weaving the story of my life into the bigger story. You and I have the same opportunity to do that with our lives. So that then when we face the ups and downs, the trials, just like Mary, yeah, it, it was hard. It was challenging. It did probably shake her faith. But she made it out with her faith intact. Same for you and me. As we go through the ups and downs, we can learn that our life is part of a bigger story, and we can learn that we can trust the character of the author. So I've got a couple next steps, two next steps that have to do with this. The first one is I'd encourage you to do an Advent reading plan. Advent is the time leading up to Christmas. So what I would do is I would go on the YouVersion Bible app. You can get there through the Seabreeze app. You just go on there. There's the button called Plans in the middle of the bottom of the screen. Click that and look up an Advent reading plan. Get to know the story. The second next step that I would challenge you to do is attend every Sunday for the next three months. I didn't say three weeks. I said three months. Every Sunday, prioritize coming to church. Because what you're going to find if you prioritize coming to this gathering is between interacting with people, between services, 
The, the songs that we sing, the songs are very strategic between the songs that we sing, the message that you hear, what's gonna happen for you? You're gonna gain more clarity on the role God wants you to play in the story. And you're gonna start to see how your life fits in the bigger themes of the story. And then you're also gonna connect with other people that are living in that story. So I'd encourage you for the next three months, make church attendance here at Seabreeze a priority. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you that from the very beginning, you've had a plan. And I thank you that as we go through Christmas and the Christmas season, we get to see and be reminded of that plan. And I thank you that through studying the life of Mary, we get to, again, be reminded of this plan that you've had from the very beginning. And God, I thank you for that. And I thank you for giving us the example of Mary and the hard things that she went through and not not sugarcoating it or making it something that we can't relate to, but allowing us to imagine ourselves going through the ups and downs and then having a faith that stays intact because we know we're part of a bigger story and we have our eyes fixed on you, the one who's the author of the story. So God, I thank you for that. And I thank you for Mary's example. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.